Well, I, uh, I am proud of all of our graduates, especially my son, Corey. And uh, it's not because I'm more proud of him than Jacob, but I've walked longer with him than, than Jacob, or Annalise, or uh, Katie McNeil. And I know all their parents are proud of them as well. It's funny, the other day, Corey said to me, why, why are people so proud of graduates anyway? I mean, it's not like we wanted to go to school for 12 years. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's an exact quote, son, but something like that. He was trying to figure out this whole, we're so proud of you, why? I just went to school. It's all, you know. I actually got through Corey's graduation ceremony without shedding a tear. Now, I choked up a few times, but I'm not sure if that's because Corey was graduating or because I was staring down the barrel of 18 more years. But I want to say something. <laughs> I want to say something to all of our graduates, something that a few of us have, have begun to realize in our lives, and that is that the challenges get bigger from here on out. They get bigger. In other words, the bigger they come. At the time of our text in 1 Chronicles 20 this morning, David was in his late 60s to early 70s. We are toward the end of David's life. He is getting a little bit older. You may recall a spirited young David facing the, a problem of, of ginormous proportions back in 1 Samuel 17 as he faced another giant, a giant by the name of Goliath. You all remember the story. I want to read a couple of highlights to you. 1 Samuel 17, verse 4 says, A champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That's nine feet two minimum, possibly about nine feet four. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's the head of the spear, 15 pounds. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall become our servants and serve us. And again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Well, when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Meantime, back in Bethlehem, David is hanging out with the sheep, and Dad says, Son, I need you to go to the battle lines and take some bread and cheese and meat to your brothers. Give them some food. Take a you know, little basket with you. Just let them know we're praying for them and we're concerned for them. So David takes off and he shows up there and he sees what's going on. And he sees Goliath down there taunting Israel. And young David, probably 17, 18 years old, probably just a graduate himself, is looking at the scene saying, what's the deal? He's one guy. And he starts asking around, what will happen to the person who defeats Goliath? Oh, you're, you're, you're obviously a youngster. You know, all the men of Israel were saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Obviously, there are rewards available for those who, who could best this giant. But, you know, David's brothers even taunted him and said, go home. This, this is none of your affair. You're, you're a child. Well, David goes to Saul and says, I'll take him on. I'll fight him. Saul is impressed with this, and Saul armors him up. Of course, you know the story. The armor was too big for David, so he lays it aside, and he goes down into the dry creek bed and picks up five stones, sticks them in his pocket, takes his sling, and starts coming at Goliath. 
Verse 41 of 1 Samuel 17 says, The Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. Which I think is hysterical. Get that scene. Nine foot four Goliath. Daddy little David. But Goliath is still walking behind his shield-bearer. So the Philistine looked and saw David, and he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Which, by the way, is a twisted quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. Which is an amazing thing to say, because how do you remove a head with five stones and a slingshot? He had nothing with which to remove the giant's head, other than possibly the giant's own weapons. And so he says, I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that David is great. He didn't say that. He said that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. Well, then it happened. The Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David. And David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and swung it. And it struck the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. And thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. But he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in David's hand. Well, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Israel partied. Everybody was amazed. I can't even imagine what it was like to be David that day. I mean, think about it. Giant problem solved. I have conquered. All of Israel saying, we're proud of you, son. Look at what you've accomplished. Look at what you've done. Look at what you've taken on. The battle obviously was won by the power of God. One smooth stone. David thinking, I came, I saw, I conquered. But I wonder if that day the thought ever entered David's mind that there were more giants to reckon with. Now, some Bible commentators think that David knew exactly what was to come because he picked up five smooth stones, one for Goliath and one for each of his four brothers. And that's possible. That's possible. I don't know if a 17, 18-year-old would have thought that far ahead. But do you think that David considered that day, that years later, toward the end of his life, there would be ramifications from his actions then? The bigger they come. Corey tells me that game designers have a word for this. Adaptive difficulty. Adaptive difficulty in a video game, more than just increasing difficulty with each new level as you play a game, as a gamer gets better himself, the game adapts to that gamer and gets harder. To keep the interest in the game. And I think, man, how art imitates life. Because our enemy adapts. With adaptive difficulty, 
the stronger we get, the more he adapts to that strength and fights us in new and tougher ways. The bigger they come. When we strike down the enemy, when we enjoy any victory in the spiritual realm, we need to understand Satan adapts and regroups and will come back at us again. He doesn't just lose a battle and say, oh well, hands off on that guy. Say what, as long as you're walking and living in the flesh, Satan will come back at you again. Sometimes in the same way he did before. To see if there's weakness, a chink in your armor. Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. He said, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is why it will also, that's the way it will also be with this evil generation. You know what's interesting about that parable? We just studied through Matthew, and I realized this for the first time, that Jesus is talking about his generation. He actually is giving an explanation, I believe, for the reason why he was casting out so many demons in the time of his ministry. Have you ever wondered that? All of a sudden, on the scene in Israel, the demonic activity is intense. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's having to cast out demons. Why is that? Because by the time Jesus came to Israel, Israel was like that person who had gotten rid of the evil spirits, gotten rid of the idols, they swept clean the land, they already paid for it in Babylon, so when they came back, the idols were not there. The house was put in order. But you know what was missing? The spirit. The people of Israel didn't have anything to fill the void of all those pagan idols that they had gotten rid of. And so the enemy came sweeping back in like a flood. Jesus' day saw a proliferation of demonic activity in Israel. Because when they cleaned up and emptied out the region, they hadn't filled the spiritual void. And so the demons were returning with adaptive difficulty. Get rid of one, seven will return. Drive out the enemy and you can be sure the enemy will regroup and return. Goliath was dead. And yet, more than 40 years later, though Israel may have thought one giant problem was solved, now Goliath's family, which is still alive and well, sends more giant problems on the way. Four giant problems, to be precise. Well, let's go back and take a look. 1 Chronicles chapter 20. Again, look at verse 4. We're going to take these one giant at a time, one big problem at a time. Now it came about after this, war broke out against her with the Philistines. And then Sibachai the Hushathite killed Sipai. Sipai. Now the parallel story is in 2 Samuel 21, and the name is different there. Similar, but different. The name in 1 Chronicles here is Sipai. It means threshold. Threshold, as though standing on the threshold. In 2 Samuel 21, the name is Saph. S-A-P-H. Saph, which means tall. Now, just for the sake of argument, why the different names? One possibility is that 600 years separate the writing of Samuel and the writing of 1 Chronicles. And over 600 years, language can change, can't it? How many of you are even using the King James Bible today? Some are. But the language has changed. There are things written and spoken in the King James Elizabethan English means the same thing, but we hear it, oh, that's a little different. Even names are written differently. So it may just be that there was a, a span of time here, and so what 
what the chronicler, Ezra, wrote as Sipai and what was written as Saf originally, it, it is the same giant. In fact, we know it's the same giant based on who it was that killed him and, and the scene and the way it parallels here. But the, the name change is not that big a thing to, uh, to work through here. Another possibility is that in 2 Samuel 21, the name Saf, tall, is more of a description. He killed a tall giant, a Saf giant. While Sapai in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 4, maybe that's the actual name. Either way, though David busted Goliath 40 years earlier, his giant family is back, and there are still tall problems on the threshold. And that's what you need to understand about this giant Sapai. I need to say something here, not to graduates, but to those of you near or in retirement. And I say this to you all respectfully. The enemy wants you out of the game. He wants you out of the game. He doesn't slow up just because we grow older. But what he does do is deploy a couple of weapons against those who have been around for a while. He uses the weapon of oppression. If he can keep you down, all the worse for the church that needs your wisdom, that needs your experience, that needs your longevity. We are wrong in the church when we think it's the up-and-comers that will lead us. You don't see that in Scripture. What you see in Scripture is the opposite. It is the older who lead the up-and-comers. It is the older who teach and train up and raise up the up-and-comers. Those who say, the children are the church of the future, you know, that bugs me. Because what that does is it lets us off the hook. Well, it's their problem. (laughs) They're their taxes. They'll pay for it. You know, one way or another, they're going to take care of it. And we have come to that point in our life. We've done, we've taught the classes. We've done the work. We've been involved in the ministry. And so now it's time to relax. And I ask you if it's possible that that is actually oppression. So it's Satan whispering in your ear, you've done your bit for kith and kin. Take a break. Retire. I don't see retirement even mentioned in Scripture. Not the way we understand it. I'm not against retiring. But as Ray Rent wrote in, in his recent book, that some of you picked up and, and saw, it's all about using your retirement for service in the kingdom. Spending those years doing more than that, that now you can do. Now you even have more time to do maybe than you did before. Proverbs 16.31 says, A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. David is an old man as we get to this point in the scriptures. And the giants are still coming. And the enemy is still trying to beat David down. Oppression is, is one tool the enemy uses. A second is deception. Deception. Well, what's the deception? Well, listen to me. It's that you are no longer needed in the battle. Baloney. We need you. Can I just say, from a person at what midlife, I guess, 45 years old coming up on, we need you. We need you if you are in retirement. We need you if you have that experience of longevity. We need our older men to guide our younger. We need our older women to guide our younger. We need you. It is not over yet. You remember Mad Dog Caleb? Caleb, whose whose name literally means dog. We called him Mad Dog when we studied through Joshua because this guy is just awesome. I love his attitude, his demeanor. He is a fighter to his dying day. Back in Joshua chapter 14, let me just read this to you in verse 10. Caleb is speaking. Caleb is an old man now. And he says to Joshua, Behold, the Lord has let me live 
Just as he spoke these 45 years. From the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I'm 85 years old today. I love this. He says, I am still as strong today as I was the day Moses sent me. My strength was then, as my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and for coming in. You whippersnappers, get out of my way, he's saying. Now then, and this is Caleb's request, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard that, that on that day that Anakim were there, that is giants, with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. Everybody's getting their inheritance in the land, and you know what Caleb wants? He wants the place where he's going to have to fight. He wants the place where the giants are. Give me that as my inheritance, and perhaps God will be with me, and we'll take down a few more. He's just not done fighting. I love that about him. The Bible goes on to tell us in chapter 15, verse 13 of the book of Joshua... Joshua gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the command of the Lord to Joshua. Namely, Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, of the giants. Again, that is Hebron. He gave him Hebron. And verse 14 says, Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahimon, and Talmai, the children of Anak. And then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. This guy was fighting. He was going after the enemy. He retired in a place where he would have to fight. Mad Dog Caleb was scrappy to his dying day. And I believe that is the call the Lord would put on all of us. To our dying day, don't stop. In fact, it's time to turn it on even more. By the way, the next giant also reminds us of something that Caleb said back in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5. The first giant was Sapai, threshold or tall. Second giant is a giant by the name of Lami. Verse 5. And there was war with the Philistines again. And Elchanan, the son of Jair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Lami. Now, 2 Samuel 21 refers to Lami as Goliath. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't, didn't David kill Goliath back in, back in the earlier times? He was a young man. So, is this Goliath? I mean, Samuel says it's a giant named Goliath. And now we're told by Ezra that it's a giant named Lami. So what was his name, Goliath or Lami? The text would seem to indicate this was Goliath's brother. That Samuel called him Goliath because he stepped into the place of his older brother who was killed by David. And now this is the new Goliath, Goliath II, as it were. And so he comes into this place rising up for his fallen brother. His actual name, though, or possibly his nickname was Lami. Lami. Why would you say it's possible it's his nickname? Well, the name Lami is from the Hebrew word Lachem, and it means bread. Lami means my bread. This is the name of the second giant who now comes up against the Israelites. Remember back when Moses sent the twelve spies into the land? And they all came back and ten said, There are giants in the land. They were scared to death. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. The sheer size of the nations freaked them out. Not Caleb and not Joshua. No, Caleb and Joshua stood up. Caleb said these words. Numbers 14, verse 9. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. 
So the word pray in the Hebrew is lachem, bread. Don't fear the people of the land. These guys are bread for us. In other words, they're toast. All we have to do is trust the Lord, go up against them, and they will be our lunch today. They are our bread. Well, clearly Lami was bread for Elhanan here in 1 Chronicles 20 because he killed him. He, kicked, he, he took him out. That's the second giant. His name is my bread. Third giant, giant number three, verse six. Again, there was war at Gath. And there was a man of great stature who had 24 fingers and toes and six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. And he also was descended from the giants. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, that is David's nephew here, killed him. These were descended from the giants in Gath. Giant number three has no name, so we're just going to call him Double Dozen Digits. Okay? It's a way to remember him. Double Dozen Digits. The fact that he has 12 fingers and 12 toes is probably due to the corrupt genetic strain that produced these giants in the first place. Can you imagine this guy at a finger food fellowship? (laughs) David's nephew (laughs) takes this guy out. Concluding the giant wars. But why is double dozen digits left nameless? Why doesn't he have a name at all in scripture? Well, I don't know if you've noticed this. I have. After a while, all giants tend to look alike. They all start to just look the same. I'm talking about giant problems in our lives. Have you noticed after a while that problems tend to have the same impact on your heart, on your life? If you're a person who gets really stressed out easily, it doesn't matter what the problem is, it's going to cause you to be stressed out. If you're a person who's very fearful, no matter what the problem is, you're going to be afraid. We tend to have the same response as one problem after another comes up, and they may be different problems, but ultimately the result is the same. They all look the same to us. And we begin to get overwhelmed. Which is one of the reasons I believe Jesus said in Matthew 6.34, Don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You deal with today, Jesus said. You deal with today's giant. Name him if you need to. And don't lump them all together, all the giant problems... You know, as, as we read through here, we're, we're not told three giants attacked Israel. We're told one giant attacked. And then one giant attacked. And then one giant attacked. One at a time. One of Jesus' best prescriptions for dealing with problems in life, I believe, is doing that. One at a time. Well, I have this going on with my family, and this is going on with my friends. No, hang on, hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. One problem at a time. Deal with this one today. You might not even get to tomorrow. You think about that? You might die in your sleep. Hallelujah. Jesus might come before you finish dinner tonight. Praise God. Then what was I worried about tomorrow for? One day at a time. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22 says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Praise your faithfulness. God's going to get me through today. And when I wake up in the morning, I've got new grace, new loving kindness, new compassion, new faithfulness for tomorrow. By the time we get to the last giant, his name doesn't even matter matter at all. He's all thumbs or fingers and toes, whatever you want to say. 
So the important thing to note is that this is the way of the Christian life. And this I say to our grads, and this I say to each of us, this is the way of the Christian life. The fight goes on. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it doesn't stop. It keeps going. I don't tell you this to bum you out, but to bear you up. And I'm not saying this to make you paranoid, but to help you be prepared to stand fast because the fight goes on. When the Iron Curtain came down, when the wall came down, everybody thought, now there's a chance for peace in the world. Look at where we live today. Man, in the late 80s, I thought, as as I had graduated, and I'm looking at the future ahead of me, I'm thinking, you know, things are looking pretty good. You know the old song, the future's so bright, I've got to wear shades. Right now, the future is not that bright in this country or in this world. The problems are giant, as they are for many of us in personal life. The fight goes on, it goes on, it goes on, and that's why the Bible tells us, Jude chapter 1, verse 3, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Don't give up. Contend. Fight. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Don't draw back. Press on. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. These are fighting words, gang. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying every speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Senior saints, retirees, graduates, and everybody in between, listen to me, there is no furlough from the fight of faith. There's no furlough. The fight goes on. It's real, and this seemingly giant enemy is before us, and we know his name. He's not a symbol, he's not the force, he's not an idea cooked up by religious leaders to keep people in fear. His name is Satan the devil, and he is actual, and he is real, and his demonic hordes are real as well. The Bible's clear on that. This is not even a, a point of theological debate. If you believe the word of God, we are in a battle with an unrelenting enemy. Now, if you were listening, you might have picked up, I said, there were four giants. But in the passage before us, we see only three. Where's the fourth? Well, the fourth giant was actually first. Turn in your Bibles back to 2 Samuel 21. 2 Samuel 21. In verse 15. Now if you are paralleling the passage that we just read in First Chronicles, you begin in verse 18 and run through the end of that chapter to 22. But go back a bit and you discover there were not just three giants in, this, in these giant wars with the Philistines. There were four. Listen to this story. 2 Samuel 21 verse 15. Now when the Philistines were at war again with Israel... David went down and his servants with him. And they fought against the Philistines. Look at this. David became weary. Remember, he's in his late 60s to early 70s. He is not the young man who bested Goliath 40 years earlier. He is older now. 
He's still going to battle. But in the battle against the Philistines, David, he's getting worn out, man. He doesn't have that, that physical strength of a young man that he used to have. Verse 16, Then Ishi Banab, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze, that's seven and a half pounds. He was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. This guy's gunning directly for the king. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. And then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle. Giant number four, who was actually the first. Giant number four, Ishi Banab. His name means he lives on the heights. Ishi Banab. Nab meaning high place or heights. And he's probably named that, Ishi Banab, because of where he was born and raised in the mountainous area where many of the giants live. But note this. David comes closer at this point to being killed here than when he faced Goliath as a teenager. As a teenager, he was, he was strong. He had his energy. He had his courage. Even maybe a slight touch of arrogance. I don't know. Maybe not arrogance. Just, just a tremendous faith. And he goes up against Goliath. No problem. No hint of fear whatsoever. No hint of weariness in David when he fought Goliath. But now, David's worn out. The battle is getting the better of him. And if not, for Abishai, David might have been killed right here. I believe there's some divine protection here as well. That David was being watched over by God, protected, that he would not fall in battle. But the men said to him, that's it, David. We love you, you are king, we respect you, but you shall not go out with us to battle so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. This is the last of David's battles. This will be, right here, his last fight. From here he leaves the battlefield and goes back to Jerusalem where he will live out his days. He will not go to war anymore. It was his final conquest, and if he had not had help, David would have fallen. Perhaps some of you at a certain point in life that you may be, maybe you have been around a while and you're saying, I just don't have the energy I had. I don't have the strength that I man. When I was a young man, when I was a young woman, I was vivacious. And now, <laughs> the alarm kills me in the morning. Now I don't wake up unless I'm sore in my lower back. I'm speaking personally on that one. Now I just don't have what I had then. The question we need to ask is not whether we should just completely step out of the battle. We need to ask, what do we need for help? Who, who is my Abishai? David had Abishai there to fight with him to take down Ishbiah. Who is my Abishai? How will I have help to fight? Now the Hebrew word here, and this is interesting, they tell him to go back. You will not go out with us to battle so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. The Hebrew word there for lamp is near. Near. And the word lamp in the scripture is very specific. It is very descriptive of a couple of things. Psalm 119.105 Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When you're running out of energy in the battle, you need more of His word, not less. Which is interesting to me that Wednesday night tends to draw an older crowd because I believe there's some recognition there. I need more, not less. 
the longer I stand and the more I'm in this battle and the more I'm encouraged to fight, I need more of the Word. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, when, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? We drove by the palm reader place there uh, heading out toward Mount Vernon. And it was packed yesterday. I couldn't believe it. Normally it doesn't. Normally you know, there's like one broken down car there. And there were like ten cars of people at the palm reader yesterday. Today, June 21st, longest day of the year. So if you're running out of time, you've got some extra time today to take care of things. Longest day of the year is the summer solstice and it's being celebrated at Stonehenge. As the people are all gathering and celebrating and partying there, and I read an article this morning saying there were, there were people going up just to touch the stone. Oh, it's warm, and it does something spiritual to you, and they're dancing and celebrating around Stonehenge as a pagan monument in the world today. Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? You know what the Lord says? To the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. People were up all night at Stonehenge and as the sun came up in the morning and the dawn, they celebrated the new day, the new summer solstice in this pagan environment. And the Bible says if they don't have the Word of God, they have no dawn. I know there are some who would say, I knew you were going there, Rick. So just said, the Word is a lamp to my feet. I knew you were going to start talking about Bible study and being in the Word once again. Okay, here's the problem. I, I'm going there because not enough of us go there. Not enough of us are spending time in the Word. Are meditating on the Word before the Lord. Are seeking out the Lord and saying, what, what does this mean? What are you saying? What do you have for me today, Father? I'm getting to the point when people call for pastoral counseling, I'm going to start asking this question. Have you turned on the lamp? Before I open my fallible human mouth and say a single word, have you opened the lamp? Have you turned it on? Have you gone to the light of the Word? Have you even plugged it in? I said there are two things that the word lamp indicates throughout Scripture. One is the Word. And the second one, the Word is not the only thing here. 2 Samuel 22:29, And this is after the fight against the giants. David is writing a psalm of praise. And he says, You are my lamp, O Lord. And the Lord illumines my darkness. And Bible students, you know, if you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 20, you see the golden lampstand. Seven of them. John has them in his vision. The lampstand that stood in the temple that we recognize as a picture of the Holy Spirit of the living God. Seven lights constantly burning. Seven spirits before the throne of God. And you can study that in Revelation and it's fascinating to understand. But John sees a lampstand that pictures the church that is plugged in to the Holy Spirit. And once again, we're right back to the two greatest weapons of our warfare. The Word and the Spirit. The sword and prayer are how we fight. This is where you go, gang, when you are weary in battle. You go back to the Word and you go back to the Spirit. Corey, Jacob, guys, you're going to get weary in battle. You go back to the Word and you go back to the Spirit of Jesus. Again and again and again. Now David's men, here in 2 Samuel, they call him the Lamp of Israel. You shall not go out with us again to battle so that you do not extinguish the Lamp of Israel. Of Israel. They're saying we can't afford for David to be killed. We can't afford for this lamp to go out. We need this lamp to continue to burn. But the lamp did go out. 
David died. You can go to Jerusalem today and see what they, they suppose they think is the tomb of David. The lamp went out. And yet, in Acts chapter 2, and I love this, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, the Lamb of God, quoted David on the day of Pentecost. David wrote it in Psalm 16, verse 10. Peter says the following, Acts chapter 2, verse 27. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to to undergo decay, David wrote. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, Peter says, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is here with us today. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. David was only a representation, a representative of the true Lamb of Israel, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. And when they said, this lamp can't go out, they didn't recognize, hey, David was going to die. That picture of the lamp was going to go out, but Solomon was going to follow, and the picture of the lamp would continue, and the kingdom would continue all the way down to the coming of Jesus Christ. The Word is His, the Spirit is His, the power is His. And 2 Samuel 2, verse, uh, 21, verse 15 tells us, that as old David fought Ishibanab, he got weary. Are you weary? Are you facing giant problems? Again, some of you, some of us, are dealing with the same problems we dealt with 20 years ago. They're back. I don't know if I shared this with you all on a Sunday morning, but having young children in the house again, I'm revisiting some of my old sins. Some of the things... 20 years ago that I struggled with as a young dad some of the old feelings of selfishness the stupid reasoning you know the getting angry over things that don't matter some of that stuff's resurfacing I thought it was done I beat those giants along with Corey I beat them back then I took care of that I'm mature now I'm in a place oh bring on the kids because I've walked that road I know what I'm doing Ah, the giants are back and they're big I'm tired and Paul said in Romans 8.36 just as it is written for your sake we are being put to death all day long we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered but in these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor debt nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord and I gotta show you one last thing here it's absolutely wonderful verse 8 of 1 Chronicles 20 tells us the following these were descended from the giants in Gath and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants really? I agree that they fell by the hands of his servants, but they did not fall by the hand of David. David could not beat Ishibanov, and so Abishai steps in and kills him for David. And the three giants that we read about in chapter 20, they're killed by Sibachai, and by Elchanan, and by Jonathan, not by David. So what's the point? 
the writer of Chronicles gives David credit. Credit for what? Don't miss it. Credit for showing up. You get credit for showing up. You get an A grade with the Father if you just show up. If you will just be there. David didn't kill a single one of these guys, but he's credited because with the Lord we're not rewarded according to our success in the battle. We're rewarded according to our willingness to engage in the battle. And it may be difficult. And I may be just one of the many on the field running around swinging and not hitting anything. But God looks at that and says, You came. And you saw. And I conquered. You get credit for showing up. Revelation 22.12, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me. To render to every man according to what he has done. He's going to say, Rick, what did you do? And I'm going to say, well, I kept showing up. I don't know that I had any massive successes in my life, but I showed up, Lord. I kept up the resistance. And James says in James 4, verse 7, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Stay in the fight, and Satan will take flight. Turn on the light, and you'll be all right. Jesus said, Revelation 2.10, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. And listen, if you will just show up in faith, if you will just be there in the battle, when it's all said and done, Jesus is going to look at you and look at me and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Father, I fight for that day. And Lord, we stand with that great hope of the time when you will say, Well done. We want to hear those words from your mouth, Lord. That encouraging statement. The credit just for being your people and for being on the scene. Father, if we get anything out of these giant battles that we've read, may we understand that if we will just continue to walk in Jesus, if we will keep from giving up, if we will but trust and show up, we will truly receive a crown of glory because, Jesus, You already won it. Lord Jesus, bring Your encouragement today by Your Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.